0: What was it? It was a woolly rhinoceros chasing a bunch of Neanderthals. God, this whole area is going crazy. I know, right? Yesterday it was the giant ground sloths.
2: I missed that. What time was that? I beg your pardon? What time did that happen?
0: I don't know what you mean.
2: Time? Like a, a really specific part of the day? We need a better system.
0: We get up, we do stuff, we go to sleep. What's wrong with that?
2: Okay, let's say I wanted to meet up with you.
0: You're with me right now.
2: N- no, but later.
0: Define later.
2: Uh, a certain amount of the day would have passed.
0: You could just go look for me?
2: Okay, well, imagine this. What if I had a thing, um, like, on my wrist, and you had a thing on your wrist, and then we could look at it and, and know what part of the day it was, and I could be like, hey, you know, let's meet by the berry bushes when our wrist things say... You know, whatever.
0: Okay, now you're talking really crazy.
2: Maybe, but maybe not.
0: Seriously, that is crazy talk.
2: Yeah, you said that about the wheel.
0: This is different. This magical wrist thing. Don't even mention it to anyone else, okay?
2: Okay, well, I gotta run.
0: Yeah, see you tomorrow.
2: Okay, what time? Huh? Got you. And now the guy who's always late for the Smilodon roast... Colin McEnroe.
3: Yeah. So those are two uh, more or less neolithic people uh, trying to figure out uh, how to order their days when they have no particular way of measuring time. And one of them at least has no concept of time whatsoever. Uh, That's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. All we're going to do for the next 49 minutes is explain time to you. So we should have lots of time left. That's not, not a very big job, right? We should have 19 minutes probably left over to do something else. Now, this is a this, this show uh, takes a big bite uh, out of a very big topic. Uh, we're going to start with the author of Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation uh, written by Alan Burdick. Uh, I want to say that Alan will be with us for the entirety of the show. We're going to uh, go from kind of the human dimension to, to the world of physics and then uh, in the end towards music, a place where time distortions occasionally intentionally happen. But Alan Burdick, uh, thank you for anchoring this conversation with me. My pleasure. Great to be here. Um, I want to begin uh, with um, something that I hadn't occurred to me uh, until I read your book, and that is, I mean, I guess I sort of knew this, but I never really thought about it this way. The, the, sometime in the 1960s, we flipped our way of measuring time on its head, that basically the, our way of understanding time had been based on uh, rotations of the Earth and revolutions uh, of the Earth around the sun. So time was taking place out there in in outer space at uh, uh, some kind of bird's-eye view of Earth. Uh, and we changed it so that we're actually measuring time from some of the smallest substances here on the ground. How did that happen, or why did that happen?
1: Well, um, yeah, you, it, so, you know, you can kind of think of... of the Time in terms of how we measure the time of day from, from two directions. One is kind of top down, and you know you've got the you've got the rotation of the Earth, and you got 24 hours, and you can divide that up into minutes, and then you've got what 86,400 seconds in a day. Um, so the second is kind of a, a mathematical abstraction. It's a subdivision. But coming along in the 1960s, um, so so it was, it was realized that one problem uh, with that approach is that the rotation of the Earth is actually gradually slowing down. So um, one eighty six thousand four hundredth of a second, uh, you know, just gets a little bit longer each and every day. Um, so scientists came up with another way to do it, which is basically from the bottom up. Let's measure a second using, uh, for instance, uh, a cesium atom, which uh, vibrates 9 billion-plus times per second. Um, And then you can, you know, you've got your seconds, and you can add those into minutes, and you can add those into hours, and you can tell the time like that. Um, And that, you know, that's been the way we've done it, but the problem is still that the Earth is slowing down. So those two kinds of seconds are are gradually uh, coming, you know, they don't They don't quite measure the same amount. So every few years, we have to add into our calendar a leap second.
3: So one uh, of the things that you talk about in, in your book are these uh, entities and organizations that, uh, including the charming uh, located in Greater Paris, BIPM, entities and organizations that, uh, to use your verb, produce time. Uh, and, and in that sense, time is kind of a product. Time doesn't exist because... That's how long it takes the Earth to revolve around the, to revolve around the Sun, and it do, time doesn't exist because of the pulsations of the cesium atom. Time exists because we want it to. I don't know. Agree or disagree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean the, the language the language of time production is. I just find it great. So, in, in the United States and in really all the major nations, we have what are called atomic clocks, and what atomic clocks do are um, they measure, they, what they say, they realize seconds uh, and they produce seconds. And based on those seconds that you can pile them up and as I said, you know, kind of tell the time of day. Uh, and it's very accurate. And all, in the U.S., all of our smartphones and, and computer clocks all reference uh, the clocks either in, uh, e- either in Colorado or in Washington, D.C. Uh, and the same thing around the world. But of course, the problem with, you know, clocks or, you know, realizing seconds is that what if everybody isn't exactly right? So uh, there's this agency in Paris called the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. And one of the things they do is every month they have all the international, major international clocks around the world. There are about 60 of them realize their seconds at the same time so that the bureau can kind of measure who's faster and who's slower, Right. And they compile all this information. It takes a few days. And then they send out basically a newsletter, or a piece of email that tells all the clocks, well, you know, for the sake of the average, maybe next time you could slow down a little bit or just speed up a little bit. So in that sense, what's called international coordinated time is, is not actually a clock. I kind of assumed that there was some clock somewhere that we were all getting our information from. But it's really there's a newsletter where they're processing the information from last month's clocks and feeding into feeding it all into into next month's uh, calculations. It's so, it's uh, yeah it's, it's all it's super weird.
3: Yes, and it's very head exploding because you, you start asking yourself the question: Where does time exist? Uh, in other words, we can see something change, right? We can watch a tree for a, a period of time and see the tree change. And so uh, I guess you could argue we're observing the passage of time uh, at, the, at that point. But, but, for the, but you can't really see time. And, and the question then becomes, does time exist mainly inside us? Uh, as a, i mean listen, think about those two cavemen in, in the cave persons in the introduction you know th- they need time so they can figure out when to meet at the berry bar- bush so they need some way of measuring a thing but but what's the thing where where does the thing exist
1: yeah that that's a that's a great question and i and i think it's probably important to to point out at at this stage um a, a realization that I came to really early in this in this project I started going around and talking to psychologists and neuroscientists and basically asking them, what is time? And they would all come back to me and they would say, well what do you what do you mean by time exactly? Um, and it turns out that what we refer to as time, you know, just one word is actually you know half a dozen or maybe even a dozen different experiences that we sort of lump under the same term. so, there's knowing what time of day it is. There is understanding the difference between before and after, which is something that kids don't actually get till they're like four years old. Um, there's understanding the you know the past and the present and the future. There's understanding why, you know, things that happen at the same time. And, and there's this sense we also have of, you know, this kind of perpetual now that is passing through us. These are all really distinct um, experiences and um yeah so so we have to kind of really be careful about you know uh, about our terms
3: right and it it does seem as though if you take living organisms out of the equation it it all gets very different but let's talk about people for for starters one of the things you look at a lot in in the book is whether or not we have built-in clocks so one possible built-in clock that we have is this so-called kind of circadian clock, this notion that every cell in our body is somehow or other marking time or at least aware of time. Uh, I know this is, you know, a, a 40-minute conversation, but in considerably less than that. Tell us what you found out.
1: You're right. Um, so in, in each of our cells, we have basically a clock that ticks out a 24-hour rhythm. and And the way that does that uh, very quickly is that, you know, in the nucleus of the cell, there are basically a pair of genes that uh, code for a pair of proteins that go out into the cell and do some stuff out there. And then they then they kind of build up and then they make their way back into the nucleus and they turn the genes off that produce them in the first place. And that whole process takes 24 hours. Um, and, and that is kind of a way of marking time but but all of our all of our cells have this conglomerations of cells have this your liver basically has a 24-hour clock where it's less active at certain times of day and more active at others same thing with your kidneys same thing with your heart you know your heart is most efficient at about five o'clock in the afternoon um, your body temperature is reliably lowest uh, early in the morning before you wake up and highest at about midday um, so these clocks are really important in in regulating our, our physiology, and and to do that, they have to speak to each other, just like you know your clock and my clock. If we're going to you know talk at one p.m., we need we need to know how to tell the time coordinate. It's the exact same thing going on with your cells.
3: So it should be if all of that's true. I mean, it sounds very Swiss. You know, all this stuff that's going on, and they're talking to each other. And it's so, it should be the case, Alan, that if you were to put me in a cave for 60 days and tell me you were going to take me out in 60 days and uh, I'm actually describing something that did happen to somebody else, not me. Uh, and and that my bo- the, all those clocks would just kind of keep working, right? I could be in total darkness and have no information from the outside world about what time it was or what day it was, and, and I should be able to keep track uh, of some things anyway. What, what did what did they find out when they tried something like that?
1: Yeah, you're you're exactly right, and you know the same is true in, in plants. This was known in the in the 1700s that if you took certain kinds of flowering plants and put them in a dark closet for a couple of weeks, they would continue to bloom at, you know, what they assumed was uh, morning and close up at night. And that, that would go on even in the absence of, of light. And and so, you know, come come the 1960s, um, humans decided to, to see if if this would happen to us too. And, and, and it is true uh, that you will, your body temperature will continue to oscillate, you know, high, low, high, low over a 24 hour period. But what, what also happens is that your circadian clock is not exactly the same length as the actual length of day and night. So, you know, after 60 days, you will be really out of, you know, out of sync. If you're just counting oscillations of your body temperature, you will, you know, you, pretty soon you're going to be out of sync with, the, with, the, uh, with daylight. Um, and so there was this guy, Michel Cif, who was a, uh, a French cave explorer, and he went down into a cave for a couple of months because he wanted to see what it was like to live without uh, without time. And uh, before his, as far as he was concerned, before his time was up, his colleagues up above said, hey, you know, it's time to come out. And he thought, well, no, no, no not enough time has gone by. And they said, oh, yeah, sure, it has. And sure enough, he had, he had really lost track of time according to day and night.
3: Now, there's another way that you could conceivably of, well, actually, before we get to that one, let's talk a little bit more about kids. So uh, Jean Piaget uh, studied kids, uh, and after Einstein asked him a question at Davos, I, l- I love this Davos conference. It's so much better than the Davos conferences they have now. <laughs> but anyway, so you've got all these you know, uh, great minds at Davos, and Einstein says to, to Piaget, well, what do you know? What do children know about velocity? What do they know about time? What do they know about? And, and Piaget says, I don't know what they know about that. And he goes back and he starts studying it. And one of the things he finds out, looking at four- to six-year-old children, is that, you know, I mean, if we really are kind of innately time-perceiving creatures, you know, we ought to be pretty time-perceiving from the get-go, right? That ought to be, you know, almost as basic as our ability to tell light from dark or hot from cold, right? If If we're like little you know biological clocks we we should know these things but the kids really didn't i mean I, I'll, the one that i thought was fascinating was piaget would um push a little truck around a room and have the kid push a little truck around the room and and he'd intentionally go a little bit faster than the kid and then they would both stop and he'd be ahead of the kid and he'd say who stopped first and the kid would say oh i stopped first his his perception being well he must have stopped first because the other the piaget's truck is ahead of his like he wasn't really necessarily able to perceive the location of an event in time
1: yeah that that was kind of einstein's question to to piaget you know einstein's interested in time and space and and einstein's curious about the the young brain and 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 how does it you know perceive time and space as one or or are those kind of two separate things and so piaget does all these experiments with trains, you know that that uh, he stops and starts them at the same time, but one moves faster than the other. And it's like, you know, did, did they stop at the same time? Yes, did they start at the same time? Yes, did one move farther than the other? Uh, yes, did one move faster than the other? No. Um, and And Piaget really kind of began to point out that what we think of as time, all these different facets of time really are not uh, innate. And you know, for instance, uh you know a kid of of two or three years old will use the past tense and the present tense but it's not really until they're about four years old that they understand the difference between before and after i mean i remember my kids one of them when he was three he he, um he was sort of in a reveille about this about this babysitter that had stopped by to say hi a few weeks earlier and i said well you know that that was about three months ago and he said well when is it going to be three months again
3: (laughs) Um, Let's talk about another way in which um, human beings can have a different kind of relationship with time. So uh, back on uh, the beloved uh, series Star Trek, you know, they do talk about this all the time. I mean, Captain Kirk would say to, you know, report down to the engine room and you better hurry. You've only got 15 years. Because, in fact, of course, you know, at that point, they'd be moving really, really, really fast, uh, much faster than the people back home, wherever home was. Uh, and, and because of relativity, we know that does, that actually sort of changes um, the, the nature of time. But as you say, in a much more pedestrian way, I guess it's not really pedestrian, but if you're on, a, on an airplane going really fast in the sky, you're actually experiencing time at a different rate. Explain this. Um,
1: well, Richard Muller is going to do a much better job of okay. explaining it than I will, but but um, it, it really has to do with uh, with the frame of rest reference and, and how fast you're going uh, r- with regard to the speed of light. So uh, if you're up in a plane or, or even higher up going at a faster rate um, and you have a clock on board with you, you know, you're sitting next to the clock. clock is ticking away one second per tick. Um, but from the reference point of someone on Earth, it seems as though – well, it not only seems as though it is uh, – the case that your clock is actually ticking uh, – oh, man, am I going to get this right uh, – uh, faster than uh, a clock on uh, on Earth. Hmm. Um, and that's a function of um, Earth's gravity, of acceleration. This is something that Einstein predict- predicted, but didn't really become – Uh, clearly experimentally proven until the 70s.
3: Now, um, we're speeding all over the place here um, like an airplane. Uh, I'm just trying to, to at least uh, touch down on, on a few of the really interesting areas in your book. By the way, we were talking to Alan Burdick. His book is Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific uh, investigation. We can only skim the surface. Uh, I recommend getting the book and, and plunging in a little deeper. But, you know, I, I think it can also be argued, uh, as you explore, that one of the reasons that uh, humans care so much about time, uh, the reason that maybe time is not just this kind of Slightly emergent phenomenon that occasionally intrudes on our thoughts or whatever is because our time is finite. Let's let's again uh, go to Star Trek. Uh, This is Malcolm McDowell playing Doctor Sauron. Aren't you beginning to
4: feel time gaining on you? (laughs) It's like a predator. It's stalking you. Oh, you can try and outrun it with doctors, medicines, new technologies.
3: But in the end,
4: time is going to hunt you down and make
3: the kill. Time is going to hunt you down and make the kill. So, you know, at the level of just existence, I think all of us. I mean, you couldn't think about it that way all the time, or you'd go mad. But we all have moments, and we have more of them, Alan, I think as we get older, I'm older than you are, where we become keenly aware that time only flows in one direction, that we are on a river that only flows in one direction. We can't go backwards on the river, you know, and, and the river is taking us to a very specific destination. Um, and how much does that, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that human beings are these kinds of time-eating animals, time-producing and time-eating animals, because it's a matter of vital concern to us in a way that it isn't uh, to a coconut.
1: Yeah, well, uh, um, among developmental psychologists, uh, a a lot of them will say that a a sense of self is really um, an understanding of the sense of self through time. Uh, You know, your understanding that the person that you were yesterday or last week is the same person that you are now, is the same person that you will be, um, you know, 50 or 60 years from now. And that's not actually uh, an awareness that that we have as humans until, you know, age three, four, or, or five. Um, and I, you know, w- w- once you kind of come into this realization, and I remember it distinctly with, with my kids when they were four and five years old, you know, suddenly the light's going on and and as soon as you start thinking about, you know, I, I'm the same person now and I will always be the same me, you start thinking about, well, what is always? How, how long is always? And then I started getting all of these questions about, you know, uh, how long am I going to live for? And, uh, you know, who, who's going to eat my birthday cake when I die? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we often talk about um, the sense that time is speeding up as we get older, that the years go by faster as we get older. And, and what the studies actually seem to, to suggest is that it's not so much that the years go by faster, it's that our years are, number one, kind of more scheduled than ever. Um, and we are more conscious of time than ever, in part because, you know, maybe we are getting older and, and kind of thinking about uh, the end zone. Um, and, and so time just becomes a, 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 takes up a greater fraction of our, of our thinking day.
3: Right. You know, uh, you quote Heidegger as saying, uh, existentially, time gains its value from finitude. Um, You know, I think probably the closer we are to the end, the more that we start to value the time and the more it seems as though there's not enough of it. Whereas when we were kids and we were bored, there sometimes seemed to be too much of it. Um, All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, We're as if things weren't head spinning and and brain exploding enough. uh, We're going to add a physicist to the mix. And you know what that does.
5: What's time to a
0: hog? What's a Nobel Prize to a toad or a fiddle to a frog What's time to a hog? What the hell am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now, you're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed then. When? Just now. We're it now, now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now.
3: (laughs) All right. That's from Spaceballs. Um, And it... uh Uh, sets up our next conversation. Uh, We still have with us Alan Burdick, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Uh, We also have with us Richard Muller, professor emeritus of physics uh, at UC Berkeley, uh, winner of a MacArthur Prize and lots and lots and lots of other prizes, and author of several books, most recently and significantly now The Physics of Time. So uh, Richard Muller, welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This feels a little bit like a test for which I did not study adequately, but I really (laughs) did uh, absolutely do my best. So um, I think maybe we can begin where I think you begin, which is by asking why the arrow of time points and races into the future as opposed to, as that clip suggests, uh, to the past, to back then. Um, What has been thought about this and what are your changing thoughts about this?
4: Well, the standard explanation uh, it connects it to a concept in physics called entropy, which just means that things tend to get more scattered, they get more random uh, as time goes on. The entropy theory states that the reason time goes on is because of entropy, mm-hmm. um, that the changing complexity of the world, the fact that things get more spread out, sometimes it's called heading towards higher confusion that this is what sets sets the, 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 the arrow of time. That was my starting point because I first learned of this when I was a graduate student in physics and it didn't seem right to me. But wiser, smart people had said this. Eddington, one of the great heroes of physics up there with Einstein, had put forth this theory, was generally accepted by many people. I asked other scientists about this and their typical answer was, well, maybe it's entropy. That's the theory, I don't really know. As time went on, (laughs) um, I became more and more convinced that this was absolutely wrong, that the increase of entropy was a result of the fact that time goes on. Um, And and that was really the beginning of my serious thought into this subject. Time is different from space. Uh, In in, in relativity theory, Einstein said space and time are just different dimensions of the same four-dimensional space-time. Uh, and if you look at relativity, and I finally did study relativity, began to know it, actually did experiments in the relativity, uh, you find that space and time are treated on a completely equal footing. And yet, in our own experience, you can stand still in space, but you can't stand still in time. That breaks the symmetry. There's something mysterious going on there. That's really how I got started on this.
3: You know, one question that I know some physicists have is how much status to assign to time. Because we could go a little further than you just went in suggesting that time, whatever it is, is different from a dimension of space. And we could say that, you know, if and when there is a grand unified theory of everything, will time turn out to be written into the fundamental equations? Will it have, you know, that basic a status Or will it be this kind of emergent function? I mean, are we giving time too much credit? Uh, Is it going to exist? Does it exist the same way uh, as these other dimensions? Where do you land on that one?
4: Well, there are there are physicists who seriously write the idea that time is an illusion, Mm. that it doesn't really exist, that we just think it does. What we really have is just a series of events. Uh, and we connect them through this illusion called time. That strikes me as certainly not physics, certainly not scientific. It's some sort of a spiritual, religious way to look at things. The role of physics is to explain things within this realm in which we exist, not to simply deny the existence of time. And we we all experience time. It's, it's, it's a great mystery to us. Uh And the role of physics is to explain the mysteries, not to dismiss them. I I think many theorists do this because the current theories, the current unified theories, the string theories, I know all about these things, Mm -hmm. they don't address this question. They don't even begin to address this question. And it does not, even if we have a grand unified theory five years from now, which explains everything, it won't explain this. There's no real progress made on this subject Since, well, actually, Einstein and then Feynman made some progress on it in the 1950s. And since then, uh, physics has ignored the issue.
3: Yeah. And I want to come back in just a second, uh, Rich Muller, to some pretty fascinating experiments uh, that you've been involved in um, that give us some actual kind of hard data about at least one aspect of this question. But let me switch over to Alan Burdick for a second. I mean, in fact, you know, uh, what uh, professor muller is saying i think is true that in some ways uh, although physics treats of time it, it maybe doesn't treat of time as thoroughly extensively avidly enthusiastically as it treats of other topics and as a result we really do rely on people like saint, August- saint augustine and uh, and william james people who were not physicists uh, to tell us what they think about time and, and to a certain degree each of them, although they do it a little bit differently um, Alan it, it does seem that each of them kind of says well time actually resides inside us as opposed to anywhere else
1: well I mean I, I think you know they would probably both agree that um, you know time is time is something that we uh, that we occupy it's it's not it's not an illusion in the in this you know the sense that you know it, it doesn't exist, but but they were primarily uh, concerned with, with the psychological process, and and they both said to a certain degree, look, you know, we we you know we talk about the past, present, and the future, but but really only one of those three uh, is is actually something that we reside in, and that that is the present, as as Augustine said. There's the present uh, of our of our you know kind of recollection of memory, and there's our present expectation of what's going to happen the future. And then, then there's our, our present attention. Um, and and James said something similar. He was like, you know, forget all the tenses and everything. Uh, let, let's just deal with what, what I'm going to call the specious present. There's this span of, of time, uh, you know, maybe it's half a second long, maybe it's a couple of seconds long, in which, you know, we kind of clearly perceive is something you can perceive the beginning and the end of a sentence, or you know you can perceive a, a, a meteorite passing through the sky. Um, uh, at, at the time that, that James was writing, uh, there were a number of German experimentalists who were really preoccupied with trying to measure how long now is um, a, as a kind of a, a proxy for uh, a measure of consciousness. And uh, to James, that was all just really tedious. He called it microscopic psychology. And uh, and and he was just m- much more interested in in you know the the kind of phenomenological uh, I- experience
3: of it. So hard to strip away consciousness from our um, understanding of time, um, uh, Professor Muller. I do. I have a couple of questions uh, that are. Asked from a position of profound ignorance, but striving ignorance, uh, I'm trying to understand. One of the questions that I have has to do with the quantum level. Uh, I think I've read about particle experiments in which something that happens to a particle uh, at time moment n seems to affect that particle, uh, the status of that particle at time n minus one. So, I mean, does time always flow forward, even at the quantum level? Well, this was...
4: The uh, concept that I refer to of uh, Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feynman in the 1950s came up with a way of looking at elementary particles that actually had backward time flow in it. Mm -hmm. Now, that was just an interpretation of his equations. His equations. We're able to really predict things better than anything we have uh, had before or since. The equations that he came up with for electromagnetism involve this term that can be interpreted as things moving backward in time. But that's just an interpretation. Uh, it, he, he doesn't, there's no, nothing in his, see in physics, time, flow of time, and, and even even causality, uh, don't have any real direction to them. Uh, time, even in the Feynman equations, is just a parameter and you could put in a negative time to that. But my interpretation of Feynman's equations are that they do not allow backward flow of time. They are equations and that's a nice way to visualize them. But but I, I think of time more as a issue of free will. I, I, it, it, one can actually apply physics to the concept of free will and come up with meaningful results. You know, uh, phys- uh, Time wasn't part of physics until Einstein made it part of physics, and then he showed that physics can actually say some things about time. You can show that the rate of time flow is different depending on your altitude. Uh, time flows faster upstairs than it does downstairs, and this has been measured, it's really true. Einstein put time into the realm of physics, and I was surprised as I worked on this subject to recognize that one can also incorporate in the issue of free will. And I'm also a fan of Augustine. I, I thought he would, had one of the greatest insights into the nature of time of, of any past writer. But I give a different interpretation to the present. Uh, the present, in the way the physics works out, is the present is the only moment. In the flow of time, when we can exercise our free will. That's an astonishing thing, I think, to be hearing from a physicist. But it, 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 it does fit into physics, and the whole issue of free will uh, actually does come into physics. It, it, it's related to the concept in physics we call causality.
3: Hmm. Um, uh, we, before we run out of time, you should pardon the expression, we should actually talk about, this is sort of like the really good news from a certain point of view. If you think there's not enough time, well, it turns out the universe might be making more time for you, just in the same sense that the universe is expanding spatially. Um, Some of uh, your experiments, uh, Professor Muller, suggests that the universe is expanding chronologically, time-wise, that uh, the coalescing of black holes seems to produce... More time?
4: Well, it's, it's really the growth of the universe. Um, what The theory that, that I've come up with, which is explained in my book, um, is that new time is being created along with new space. As the universe expands, and we know the universe is expanding, we even know it's accelerating, that uh, with every cubic mile of new space that's created, we create a microsecond of new time. And it's, so it's, it's not entropy, entropy is a result of time, it's the expansion of space that is giving us these new times. Uh, when people say we exist in the now, uh, in my analysis of this, we exist in the past also. Uh, but we can't change the past, and so it's less interesting to us. The only time when we can exercise free will is in the present. And, and we can exercise free will because of quantum physics. Quantum physics tells us that the future is not determined by the past. There's something else that comes in. It doesn't prove we have free will, but modern physics with quantum mechanics no longer contradicts the concept of free will.
3: Um, we're going to have to stop there, although obviously we're just ca- kind of getting started in some ways, but we've got to take a break here. I do want to say we're having a pledge drive next week, and one of the things we'll be doing is for a gift of $60 or more to WNPR, we will give you a microsecond of newly created time. Uh, time that, you know, actually has only recently, it's like timeshares, sort of. You know, you'll get some extra time that has only recently been created elsewhere in the universe. And I believe. <laughs> That may be as good as some of the other things we've given you in the past. All right, we're going to take a break. Alan Verdick staying with us. We're going to talk about a place, a very familiar place, a place you're hearing right now, where time can change.
2: gonna do the credits now dang it i missed it that now is part of the past the only way to do it is to kind of sneak up on now there that's now well it was today's show was produced by betsy Kaplan and me Kyone wolf our intern is hazel cologne the part of bill curry was played by seth thomas keep up with our doings by visiting the colin McEnroe show facebook page and now back to colin
3: All right. So um, we want to talk a little bit about um, how we perceive time in certain situations, particularly music. There's something a little bit seductive about music. But um, but but Alan Burdick, before we go to that, before we join uh, Jonathan Berger uh, via Skype from Rome, Jonathan Berger, composer, researcher, and professor of music in the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford University, uh, currently a Rome Prize recipient at the American Academy in Rome, and a 2016 uh, Guggenheim fellow. Wow, I, wanna, I want his life. I want to be in Rome right now. Um, uh, Alan Burdick, actually, you quote a friend of ours uh, in your book, Dan Lloyd, professor at Trinity College, uh, talking about um, – Uh, subjective time. He says, the thing that strikes me about subjective time is how bad we are in comparison to a stopwatch. We're inconsistent in all sorts of aspects and subject to all kinds of manipulations. It's a mystery to me that we function as well as we do. So, Alan, this makes the point that, you know, our perception of time has a lot to do with what else is going on around us. Maybe you can elaborate.
1: Yeah. um, And and, and by perception of time, I I think we're talking about sort of perception of, of duration. Uh, and, and it turns out to be really fluid. So, for instance, if, if you know, I show you a series of, of faces on a computer monitor, all for the same brief duration, like a second or a couple of seconds, um, a, an angry face uh, will seem to last longer to you on screen than, than a happy face, and a happy face will seem to last longer to you uh, than a sad face. Um, and, and even stranger, if I have you put a pencil between your teeth that effect goes away. Um, and th- the reason has to do with this thing that we all do uh, with each other without even noticing it, which is we, we, we mimic each other's gestures and we meet, mimic each other's uh, faces, you know. So if, if you're looking at a computer monitor and I'm kind of slipping in there uh, some pictures of, of smiling people so fast that you don't register them, you will nonetheless smile uh, every time a, a, a smiling face shows up. And so the idea is that actually, what's going on in in, in these kind of time bending moments is that we're we're almost stepping inside uh, the, the skin of that face, um, and and we are experiencing the emotion that is on that face. Um, and, and so what what is bending time is is basically uh, a product of empathy, um, our ability to kind of place ourselves um, in other people and and experience other people's emotions and and, and so we're we're kind of bending time in conversation with each other all the time and it it's sort of critical to uh, to our ability to to, to get along and, and have social chemistry.
3: So, Jonathan Berger, um, one of the things that we know is that uh, people's experience of time in music can differ drastically from the elapsed time as counted on a stopwatch, and sometimes that's just kind of a consequence uh, of the music. Sometimes it's the intended purpose or one of the central purposes of the music. Uh, uh, let's hear a little bit of um, A Rainbow in Curved Air by Terry Riley, which I would place in that latter category. So Jonathan Berger, anybody who can keep track of anything while oh, uh, listening to that uh, is a better man than I am. Um, th- there's a lot that goes on when music is playing. This is something that you've become very interested in, the way in which music distorts time. C- can you give us kind of a, a, a nutshell version of your theory about this? And we might not have him. Um, hold on. We're going to try to reestablish uh, our connection with, oh, oh, I hear a Skype thing happening there. All right. Um We are trying to um, make contact with, first of all, uh, with Alan Burdick, who we have right now, and then Jonathan Berger, composer, researcher, and professor of music in the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford University, currently a Rome recipient at the Academy, um, a Rome Prize recipient at the American Academy in Rome, a 2016 Guggenheim Fellow. We might have him right now through the miracle of Skype. Uh, Jonathan Berger, can you hear me?
5: Yeah, I'm, it's a rotten connection, but I'm here.
3: All right. Actually, you, you sound pretty good on our end. Um, so I was just playing a little bit of uh, Terry Riley's A Rainbow in Curved Air. That, that would be probably an example of a piece of music that intentionally m- means to distort our perception of time. But how does music accomplish that? How, is there a particular way that music makes us experience time a different way than we would just counting it on a stopwatch? Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> all right. We, we might have to break away from that and uh, go back to Alan uh, for just a second. This is the problem with using Skype. We had a Richard Muller's uh, connection was on Skype and it sounded great. We're struggling right now with uh, with Jonathan Berger. So, um, Alan, I will come back to you. And I, I know that you also um, ha- have been reading some of Jonathan Berger's writing. But but in general, you know, we can talk a little bit more about how the environment that we're in, whether we're in a museum, whether we're uh, listening to music, all of that, um, has a way of distorting whatever kind of innate rhythm we have that allows us to count time.
1: Yeah, there, there was a, a, a great kooky experiment that was done uh, a couple of years ago where, you know, instead of showing you uh, faces of, of, you know, angry faces or happy faces on a screen, they would show you a, a picture of a Degas sculpture. Uh, you know, one of his sculptures of the ballerina in, in basically full arabesque. Very dynamic, um, and then they would show you uh, a, a similar one of a ballerina, basically at at rest, standing at rest. And uh, the tendency was for viewers to feel like the the dancer in in motion um, seemed to last on screen longer than the other one did. Um, and again, that that seems to be because what is going on is that we are, you know, placing ourselves. Uh, it's almost like you're placing yourself in the body of the dancer. A lot of studies indicate that um, moving images seem to last uh, longer in duration uh, than static images of you know even if the two are exactly the same length. Um, so you know you walk into it. I mean maybe even you know maybe Degas had something like that in mind where you know you, by viewing this dynamic pose um, it, it would seem to kind of stretch out in time.
3: So that raises the question of whether we can be fiendishly manipulated by people um, who who want us to perceive time differently. I mean, we know, for example, that in casinos there are no clocks because they don't want you thinking about that, about what time it is or how long you've been there. But it just seems to, that if our experience of time is that fungible, you know, we we would s- seem to be, you know, available to various kinds of outside manipulation for the purpose of exploiting us. Um.
1: Y- yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, and, and it kind of gets back to Dan Lloyd's question of, of if our, you know, if our sense of timing or if our sense of duration is is so plastic, um, what good is it? Um, and I, I think uh, some would argue that the, that the whole point of it being plastic is that it gives us, you know, as a, as a social space, as a social species, kind of r- room to interact in. Um, and, and again, these, these kind of uh, you know, flexions of time, if, you, if we can call them that, are, are manifestations of, of empathy. Um, you know, the, 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 the better that you and I get along together, the more likely we are when we're in conversation and in person to mimic each other's gestures and, and to, um, to kind of step in and, in and out
3: of each other uh, in that way. All right. I think we have Jonathan Berger by a conventional phone connection. I've already introduced him twice, so I'm not going to tell you who he is now. Uh, but we do know if you want to mess with somebody's perception of time, music's a great way to do it. People buy more drinks in bars that play slow tempo music. Consumers spend more time in the grocery store when the background music is slow. Drivers drive faster when the tempo is rapid. So, um, so Jonathan Berger, what do we know about this? I mean, how is it that, that we can be hijacked out of our normal perception of time by music?
5: So I, I think there's, um, there's sort of three angles on this. And first, let me, um, let me just riff on something that Alan writes. Alan talks about, uh, time as being contagious. In other words, that the, um, subjectivity of time is something that we pass on from one to the other. And I think that if, if, uh, I, I completely agree with that. I think that if, if, that music, in a way, is sort of the infectious host of that. It's, it's music that actually allows, uh, uh gives the tool to, uh, to give a sense of warped time. And I think um, I think one way to think about this is that um, Marvin Minsky, who's the, the sort of the father of artificial intelligence, famously once asked why, why we're so fixated on Beethoven's Fifth. And if you think about it, it's a bunch of da da das that repeat themselves forever. And his answer was just as children learn about spatial relationships by playing with blocks, we have no mechanism to learn about time and so these give us, give us sort of discrete units of time to play with. But it's within those units that the magic happens. And so, um, and it happens at many different scales. And so when, when Alan talks about the smile factor and, and how that affects perceptual time, and one, of my, one of the things I always, I always point out to my students is that when you're talking on a, on a cell phone um, and it's someone that you know, you know within a microsecond if they're smiling. And so, what is the sound of a smile? And and there's something so subtle that happens there, um, that um, and that, in a way, is is, um, sort of the primary example of, of musically warped time.
3: So we had uh, two clips uh, from your own compositions, which, uh, thanks to Skype, we're not going to have, have time to play, which is too bad. But, but um, one thing, Jonathan Berger, that modern composers do is that they try to uh, create, in some cases, what uh, another Jonathan, Jonathan Kramer, called vertical time, time which mm-hmm. kind of doesn't have a, um, a, a future or a past, only kind of exists in the present moment. Um, is that part of what you're talking about, just the use of music to change time?
5: Absolutely. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's new. I mean, my, my uh, awakening to music happened um, when I, about 40 years ago when I heard a uh, String Quintet by, by Schubert. Um, the slow movement of that C major String Quintet literally stops time, and it warps the perception of time. And over the years, I've asked many musicians who've played the piece for their time estimates on it, and it's staggering how way off they are. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, and, and I think there are pieces that go back to uh, to Bach and before that that, um, that play with perceptual
3: time intentionally. All right, and this is a conversation that I would like to extend in time, and maybe we can return to it on another day. But our time right now is essentially gone. We want to thank Jonathan Berger, composer, researcher, and professor at Music uh, from Stanford University. Alan Burdick, the book uh, is "Why Time Flies," a mostly scientific investigation. We also talked to Professor Richard Muller, whose book is now "The Physics of Time." It's almost time to go. I do want to thank Betsy Kaplan for producing this show, Kaien Wolf for making it sing. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. With the nose. And it's time, time, time that you go.
0: And it's time, time, time.
1: This is When Frank, stop. I can't stop.
2: Well, the timing of the show, it's pretty precise. It ends at a certain time.
1: I do love being in front of the mic and reading scripts.
2: Okay, I get that. Um, It's fine. We'll just fix this in post.
1: It's been my pleasure to spend the time with you and, and also have a chance to talk directly to the listeners of my member station.
2: Yeah, okay, okay, it's time. You can do it now.